Welcome to Remember Their Names, The Irish in Cleveland, a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society. The Society is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy. Hello, I'm Margaret Lynch, Executive Director of the Irish American Archive Society in Cleveland. I'm going to be trying an experiment. I'm going to record several brief podcast episodes about the history of the Irish in Cleveland, which happens to be the focus of the Irish American Archive Society. Uh, These recordings are meant to be slightly informal, and they're definitely low-tech. We're just going to see how it goes. Now, I've researched, written, and talked about a lot of topics relating to the history of the Irish in Cleveland in my capacity as Executive Director of the Irish American Archives Society. And I could sort of hopscotch among those topics, but I decided to take a straight path and follow chronology, at least to begin with. So where does the history of the Irish in Cleveland actually begin? Well, it goes farther back than you might expect. In fact, the first person of European origin to have a direct connection with what is now Cleveland was, in fact, wait for it, an Irishman. That man was George Krogan. The way his last name is spelled in early documents suggests that people heard his name as Crohan, but I'm going to stick with the way the pronunciation evolved in the U.S. George Krogan immigrated to the New World along with some family members in 1741. That's decades before the Revolutionary War. Where in Ireland did he come from? Why, why did he come? We don't know all the answers, but the death of his father may have been a precipitating event. Uh, We especially don't know why he skipped over the eastern seaboard and decided to come to the area west of the Appalachians. At that time, very few folks of European origin would have been settling west of the Appalachians. He arrived with resources, though, and evidence suggests that he had his sights set on inquiring land. It's known that his grandfather owned an estate in Ireland. In the 1740s, when George Krogan arrived, the area west of the Appalachian Mountains was the homeland of the Iroquois people. The Iroquois dominated what we might now see as the Great Lakes region in both the U.S. and stretching into Canada. The Iroquois actually consisted of a number of tribes. The tribes shared a common language with some local variations, and they shared a common culture. Long before any Europeans arrived in the area, as early as the 1400s or 1500s, some of the Iroquoian tribes had formed a confederation, their own version of a United States of Iroquois, I would guess you would say. The British called the confederation the Five Nations. Later, there were six nations. Of interest to the history of Ohio and Cleveland, some Iroquois tribes stayed outside the confederation. Two of those who stayed outside lived in what we would today call Ohio, um, with some spillover into bordering states. The two tribes were the Wyandot, also called the Huron, who lived in the west of our state, and the Erie, who lived in the east of what's now Ohio. The more powerful Iroquois tribes who were part of the Confederation were often looking to expand their territory. Uh, That included the Seneca, one of the Six Nations, who lived in what is now western New York. During a feud between the Seneca and the Huron, the Erie came to the aid of the Huron. The Seneca responded by virtually annihilating the Erie. The Erie gave their name to the lake they lived along, our lake, Lake Erie, 
but they disappeared as a distinct people by the time George Crowen arrived in the area. Strife between Iroquois tribes was part of the world that George Grogan came to, but there were other sources of conflict in the area. The French had established a beachhead in Canada and were pushing down from Canada into the Great Lakes region, what we would now see as the Great Lakes region, and the British were pushing in from the eastern seaboard. The British had also divvied themselves up into colonies, and the colonies had competing interests in this vast region. Pennsylvania and Virginia, both large and prosperous colonies, began sending scouts into the area. They were both moving in along the rivers that fed into the Ohio River. And both colonies were interested in the same strategic place, a convergence of three rivers, the place that became Pittsburgh. Significant to the history of Cleveland, neighboring Cleveland, what would become neighboring Cleveland, the colony of Connecticut also had a claim in the area, But Connecticut, smaller and less prosperous, wasn't pushing its claim as vigorously at that point. So we'll hold off on Connecticut for a minute. Fur trading was the main economic activity in what became the Great Lakes region at that time. At least it was the main activity that brought the native tribes and Europeans into commercial contact with each other. George Krogan was an ambitious young man, so he set about fur trading. That's where it was at, fur trading. At some point in the 1740s or 1750s, he established a fur trading post in a Seneca village at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River. Was it on the west side or the east side? I haven't seen any research that pinpoints the location, but uh, he opened a trading post there and in other locations around the region as well. He was active in western New York and western Pennsylvania, what would now be western New York and western Pennsylvania. He began to envision a network of trading posts, not just individual trading posts here and there. And he began also to think about a central base of operations for stockpiling and distributing furs to the consumers he envisioned might be interested on the eastern seaboard. And sorry for Cleveland, but at that point he decided that the Three Rivers area, today's Pittsburgh, was more strategically located for river traffic and customers to the east. So he brought a huge tract of land in the Fort Pitt area directly from the Six Nations people. While creating an expansive fur trading network, George Krogan immersed himself in the native world. He learned several native variants of the Iroquoian language. And after his first wife died, his second wife was a Mohawk woman. Mohawks were one of the Six Nations as well. His Mohawk wife and their daughter were leaders in Mohawk affairs. George's knowledge of native languages and customs brought him to the attention of British military authorities who were also moving into the area. George became deputy to the British Superintendent of Indian Affairs in what the British called the Northern District, what we would call the Great Lakes region now. George Crogan was often in conflict with his military superiors, however. He favored peaceful contact with the native tribes. Well, What he actually prioritized was commercial contact, mutually beneficial commercial contact. He felt that land should be purchased, not taken. Um, He tried to explain the native gift-giving culture to his military superiors and urged them to play a long game of building relationships and working uh, towards that mutual benefit that he prioritized himself personally. But the military men were often impatient with his approach. Enough of this relationship building. 
<laughs> Some of the British wanted to create a 14th colony in the interior. Others were advancing the competing interests of Pennsylvania or Virginia. For instance, the young George Washington came to the areas of Virginia Scott and Surveyor, and he crossed paths with George Crogan. Between the various colonies, the English, the French, and the various Iroquoian tribes, some of whom were aligned with the English, some with the French, there was a lot of people with conflicting interests in the region. And George Crowan, Krogan, I had decided to use the name Krogan, not Crowan, but I'm vacillating and going back and forth. But anyway, he often tried to play the role of peacemaker. Um, he negotiated several very important peace treaties, in fact. The treaty that brought an end to the Seven Years' War, and I remember it from my grade school Ohio history as the French and Indian War. George Krogan traveled on occasion to the eastern seaboard uh, to talk to people in the colonies, and he even once went to London and back to Ireland to see, to look after the affairs relating to his grandfather's estate. But the territory west of the Appalachians remained his personal and commercial focus. His wife, his daughter, his fur trading business, these more or less consumed his attention. He never played a significant role in the American Revolution and was never part of George Washington's circle. So after the war, Washington didn't turn to him as a go-to negotiator with the native tribes. Krogan found himself more and more on the margins, and he died in relative obscurity in 1782. With the death of George Krogan, the Irish element of the history of Cleveland disappears from view for a while. But the events were taking place in the 1780s and 1790s that were, will uh, set the stage for an Irish surge several decades later. So I'll tell you a little bit about what was going on in the 1780s and 1790s that was relevant for the history of Cleveland. The most important event was this. At the end of the Revolutionary War, the British conceded what they called the Northern Territory to the Americans. In turn, our country's new Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance in 1787. The ordinance formally claimed parts of the area as U.S. territory and established a process for new states to be carved out of it. People living along the crowded, already crowded Atlantic seaboard were intrigued by this new Northwest, Northwest Territory and might have thought about moving into it, but there were obstacles to settlement of European origin people. First and foremost, the territory was native land, and the native tribes did not agree that the British had the authority to give it away. The French, and still actually the British, were still lurking in the area, and various former colonies still had competing claims that had to be sorted out. For instance, I mentioned Connecticut earlier. Way back in 1622, a royal charter granted land to the new colony of Connecticut from sea to sea. That meant from the Atlantic to the Pacific. I don't think anyone in 1622 understood how vast that land was from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And also, what about the Native American tribes who lived on that land? And what about the fact that the colonies of New York and Pennsylvania stood to the west in the direct path of Connecticut's theoretical charter? By the time the Northwest Territory was established in 1787, Connecticut had given up on the idea that it was going to seize strips of New York and Pennsylvania. However, Connecticut did demand that a portion of the new Northwest Territory be reserved for the settlement of Connecticut people. Connecticut's Western Reserve was supposed to extend south from Lake Erie to present-day Akron, 
and from the Pennsylvania line on the east to the Huron River on the west, west of today's Cleveland. In the meantime, the native tribes were understandably opposed to European incursion into their territory, and they opposed the white settlers with force. At first, the native tribes got the upper hand in a variety of skirmishes. Uh, Then George Washington called on General Mad Anthony Wayne, a Revolutionary War hero, calling him out of retirement to lead the effort to pacify or drive back the native tribes in the area. Anthony Wayne was able to prevail decisively in 1794 at the Battle of Fallen Timbers, which took place near present-day Toledo. By the terms of the Treaty of Greenville, negotiated that next year in 1795, Northwest Ohio, up to and including the west bank of the Cuyahoga River, was to remain in native lands. That included the territory between the Cuyahoga and the Huron Rivers that was supposed to be part of Connecticut's Western Reserve, the area that we sometimes now call the Firelands. The folks in faraway Connecticut realized they didn't have time to dispute whether their claim ended at the Cuyahoga River or the Huron River. They had to act quickly if they were going to get in on this westward push at all. A group of Connecticut land speculators sent a surveying party west immediately. With Moses Cleveland in charge, the party landed at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River on June 22, 1796, a year after the treaty was negotiated. This was the very same site that George Krogan had chosen for a trading post some 50 years before. Uh, Though it seems that there was no sign left of Krogan's trading post or even the Seneca village when the Connecticut surveyors arrived. The west bank of the Cuyahoga River was part of the territory that was supposed to be under the control of native tribes. So Moses Cleveland's surveying party focused only on the east bank and laid out a settlement that they envisioned on the east bank only. So the division between the east and the west side of Cleveland, with the Cuyahoga River dividing both, goes all the way back to 1796, back to the beginning. But Connecticut settlers did not adhere to the terms of the Treaty of Greenville for long. Within a few years, they were laying claim to land on the west bank of the Cuyahoga as well. Cleveland was incorporated as a village in 1815, and Brooklyn Township on the west bank was incorporated only a few years later in 1818. So the settlement on the West Bank was really not very far at all behind the settlement on the East Bank. With the settlement of Cleveland overall about to take off, I'll conclude our first episode. Next episode, we'll look at the way that the Ohio and Erie Canal transformed this small village that was forming on the banks of the Cuyahoga and the role that the Irish played in that transformation. I hope, though, that you'll remember the name of George Crogan or Crohan the first Irishman to make his mark in this area. He has a Wikipedia page, there are articles about him in academic journals, and a chapter about him in a 2002 book titled Builders of Ohio, A Biographical History. Until next week, this is Margaret Lynch of the Irish American Archives Society of Cleveland. You've been listening to Remember Their Names, The Irish in Cleveland, a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archives Society of Cleveland. Find out more about the Society or get in touch at irisharchives.org.